This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 13th, 2013. I'm Christy Hamilton. And I'm Sarah Crespi. This week on the show, we have stories on how fear can change odor perception and the latest news from the Curiosity Mission at Gale Crater. Plus, a few stories from our online daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. A passing scent can evoke strong emotions or memories, but according to recent work by John McGann and colleagues, odors associated with certain experiences can do more than trigger remembrances of things past. I spoke with McGann about the power of smells paired with negative stimuli to alter the sensory machinery of the nose itself. Imagine the smell of a banana. When you open a banana, it releases a chemical into the air called isoamyl acetate. And when you breathe that in, the isoamyl acetate goes up your nose And in your nose, there's cells called olfactory sensory neurons that make certain proteins called odoreceptors, and the isoamyl acetate sticks to those receptors. When that happens, the sensory neurons respond by firing action potentials, which are electrical signals that travel down the olfactory nerve to the brain. And different olfactory sensory neurons have different types of receptors, so that some of the neurons that respond to isoamyl acetate in a banana might not respond to the butyl acetate in a nail polish, things like that. So one of the sort of nifty things about the olfactory system is that in the nose, the sensory neurons expressing all the different kinds of receptors are pretty mixed together. But when their axons go back to the brain, they sort themselves out in this really remarkable way so that all the cells that express one particular receptor go to one spot and all the cells expressing a different receptor go to a different spot. And those spots are called glomeruli. So when an odor comes into the nose and sticks to some particular subset of the receptors, depending on what odor it is, it drives electrical signals into a sort of corresponding subset of glomeruli in the brain, and that seems to be how the brain knows what odor is actually out there in the nose. So in these experiments, we were actually watching that input to the glomeruli in the brain in order to see what the mouse was smelling and what kind of signals the nose was sending in to talk about the odors that are out there in the nose. Okay. Well, in the study, you actually needed to train mice to have a fear response to a particular odor. What was the setup for that? So when we train the mice, we put them in these special training boxes that we can blow odors into and suck the odors back out. 
and the box had a metal floor so that we could give each mouse a mild but unpleasant electric shock to their feet. So when we were training them, we'd blow a couple of different odors into the box, one at a time. And when one of those odors came in, we'd give the animal a shock. And when the other odor came in, we wouldn't give them a shock. And, of course, there were also times when there was no odor in the box. And so the animals very quickly learned that when that one particular odor came in, they were going to get shocked, and they got scared. And you could see it because they froze like a deer in the headlights. So they were very clearly afraid of the one particular odor by the end. And so how are you able to actually track the differences the different responses inside the brains of these mice. Right. So that was the real trick here. So we used mice that had been genetically engineered so that the synapses of those olfactory sensory neurons, remember the cells are out in the nose and they send their axons back into the brain and the synapses are in the brain. When those synapses release neurotransmitter, they'd fluoresce. They'd literally light up. So you'd shine blue light on and they'd shine back green light. And when they release neurotransmitter, they'd light up. And what we would do in these mice is we would uh, implant a little window in the skull over the mouse's olfactory bulbs. We'd do this, you know, as a surgery under anesthesia and so forth. And then uh, we could anesthetize the mouse and put it under a microscope and blow different odors at its nose and look through the window with the microscope. And we'd actually see that different odors would cause different patterns of fluorescence so that whatever odor is out in the nose is driving some particular signal into the brain. And we would see that because the synapses of the sensory neurons would light up. Right. So you're able to say, oh, we're seeing a lot more activity when this particular odorant is presented to the mouse. Right. So we do this twice on each mouse. We, we would anesthetize them, watch the pattern of activity that comes in from the nose for this particular set of odors. And then we teach them about the odors and we image them again and see what changed. Okay. So... What you found was that this locus of plasticity, where the changes happened, was in the sensory neurons. Was that a surprising result? (laughs) Yeah, it was really surprising. I mean, we think of sensory systems as always giving the same response to a given stimulus, right? If If your ear made a different signal every time you heard your mom's voice, it would be pretty confusing. You don't know how the brain would figure out what stimulus was which. So we've always tended to think that the brain gets input from some sensory system, figures out what stimulus is out there in the world, and then brings up memories about the stimulus and say, oh, hey, that's the scary odor. But that's actually not what we found at all. Instead, it turns out that when the animal learned to be afraid of a particular odor, the sensory system itself changed all the way out to those very first neurons in the nose so that the scary odor triggered a totally different pattern of input to the brain, a much larger pattern of input than it used to. So essentially, it was like the information coming into the brain from the nose already had the memory of bad things incorporated into it. Hmm. So I'm not sure you can answer this one, not being a mouse yourself, but (laughs) do you think the odor is perceived as stronger by the mice, or does the odor smell different with these changes in the sensory neuron? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's very hard to tell because, you know, mice can't talk and tell us what the scary odor smells like. But we did find that the sort of total output of the nerve got a lot stronger for the scary odor, and we were able to compare that to the differences you typically see in the nerve for different strengths of odor. And we actually found that for the particular way we did this, the output of the nerve for the scary odor was as if the odor was about four times more concentrated than it actually was. 
So it's a good guess that the odor smells stronger, and it might also mean that they're better at detecting that odor if they only get sort of a weak little sense of it. They might be able to detect it if it's the scary odor when they wouldn't otherwise. Okay, very cool. So this seems like a very good adaptation for things that are scary, that mammals are able to make this change. Sure. But taking it back to your comments about the other senses before, you know, vision, audition, they're very different processes. Could this kind of change happen at the sensory neuron level in those settings? Yeah, so the reason we did this experiment in the sense of smell is because it's the only sensory system where we've got the tools to look, right? In this case, we're looking at the very first neurons in the circuit in a living animal that's breathing odors, and we don't have a good way to look in the other sensory systems to say, look at the retina in a living, breathing, you know, stimulus-watching mouse and see what the rods and cones are doing. Right. So we don't know if the other sensory systems like vision or hearing work the same way, but they might. I will say that if you kind of step back and look at what's been going on in sensory neuroscience over the last five or ten years, it really seems like every time we get a new tool to see what neurons are doing in different brain regions for all the different senses, it seems like everywhere we look, we find evidence that learning and memory are actually affecting the activity of the cells. So I won't be surprised if this happens in the other systems. We just don't have a way to know yet. Okay. Is there any evidence that this might be happening in the noses of people? Ah, yeah. So again, we don't really know yet, but I can say that the human olfactory system and the mouse olfactory system are actually pretty similar and that humans can definitely learn to be afraid of sensory stimuli the same way these mice did. So it's possible. It's interesting. There is a little bit of evidence that people with some kinds of anxiety disorders, most notably post-traumatic stress disorder, have sensory symptoms where they become hypersensitive to sensory stimuli that are unpleasant or related to past traumas, kind of like what happened in these mice. So at this point, we can't really say whether these changes we see in mice are also happening in people. We don't have the technology to really look yet, but it is really an area we're planning to explore over the next few years as best we can. Okay. Well, John McCann, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Thanks very much. John McGann and colleagues write about the power of fearful smells in a report this week. NASA's Curiosity rover is one step closer in its quest to find traces of ancient life on Mars. Six papers published in Science this week suggest that three to four billion years ago, a freshwater lake at Gale Crater could have harbored microbes that fed on rocks and minerals. Dick Kerr sat down with Linda Poon to talk about the rover's hunt for organic matter, as well as the first-ever dating of the Martian surface. These six papers published in Science summarize basically the first year or so of Curiosity rover's work on the surface of Mars. They basically confirm that the rover has found what was once a habitable environment on Mars. Three or four billion years ago, there was a lake bed where microbes could have lived. There's also a good deal more information on what it was like around Gale Crater. It was very dry and probably very cold. And probably the hottest new thing is report of a kind of dating of the surface of this lake bed, which is going to help curiosity scientists in their hunt for traces of organic matter. This isn't actually the first time the Curiosity rover has looked for organic matter. What happened last time and what lessons have researchers drawn from them? Well, there is some good news in these papers about looking for organic matter that may be traces of life on ancient Mars. Their first analyses 
turned out to be contaminated by a chemical they brought along in the rover for some later analyses. It leaked out somehow and into their samples and greatly muddled the interpretation. But team members have now worked through that problem. They understand it. And it turns out that at least in future samples, it's a very minor issue and they can move ahead on looking for organic matter. So what was done differently this time? Well, they had a chance to run some more samples, change some variables, and minimize this contamination problem and quantify it. So now they know where they stand and what they can do in the future. In these papers, they analyze windblown dust and powder rocks from Gale Crater. How do the analyses hint at organic matter in these samples? Well, there's some chemicals everywhere on Mars that when you heat them, they burn up any organic matter in your sample. They are looking at how those combustion products come off of the sample when they heat it up. And they're seeing hints in how that analysis goes that it's in fact organic matter that's being burned up in their analysis. And they can't prove that the carbon they see coming off their samples is organic, but that's the way they're leaning now. So even if these samples are organic, don't they also have a problem with finding out where they originated from? Oh, yes, Linda. Even on Earth, it's a tremendous challenge to find traces of ancient life in rocks in the form of organic matter. On Mars, you have this problem of turning organic matter into CO2, but you also have the problem that there's organic matter raining down on Mars every day. Of course, it happens on the Earth too, but on Mars, it settles to the surface, mixes in with everything on the surface. And so you're facing the challenge of, is this organic matter that was produced by living things, or is it just this never-having-lived organic matter Mm -hmm. that's falling out of the sky? That's the ultimate challenge for curiosity. And it has some tools to address that problem. That's going to come up next year. The ultimate goal of the mission is to get to the base of Mount Sharp and start analyzing some rocks that have been seen from orbit and have been recognized as very attractive targets. They look like just the kind of environment that you would look for if you're looking for traces of ancient life. And say if these were indeed molecular fossils of ancient life on Mars, what can the analyses from Curiosity tell us about these organisms? Well, the habitable environment that Curiosity has identified is in this ancient lake bed. Curiosity has detected all the essentials for life, the nutrients. It was obviously wet for extended periods of time, And there is an energy source. Now, on Earth, the ultimate energy source is the sun and photosynthesis. Wouldn't have had that on Mars four billion years ago. And so 
curiosity scientists are looking at possibility that there were microbes in the lake muds that can basically eat rock. They would have drawn on chemical imbalances among the minerals in the mud to drive energy so they could live. And so this habitable environment that Curiosity has confirmed on ancient Mars would be so-called chemolithotrophic organisms living off the rock. It wouldn't be the high life. Uh, <laughs> life would be very, very slow. They would reproduce very infrequently. They would probably not be leaving large amounts of organic matter behind for curiosity to find. But in principle, that's the way it could work. As you mentioned earlier, one of the big reports is that they report the first ever dating of the Martian surface. How will that advance, further advance Curiosity's mission? Well, another one of the challenges of looking for organic matter on Mars is that the Martian surface is bombarded by cosmic rays, and they plow right into the rock as much as a meter, destroying organic matter as they go. So they're really looking for rock that has been protected from cosmic rays for the last three or four billion years, but is now at the surface where curiosity can get at it. So just to look at it, you can't tell how freshly exposed it is. But turns out curiosity can analyze certain gases like helium and argon that are produced by cosmic rays striking the rock. So the more of these gases in a drilled sample, the longer it's been exposed at the surface. Curiosity has actually performed one of these dating analyses. It has shown that the spot that they happen to pick has been exposed only about 70 million years as opposed to several billion years. And because of the geology, team members now know how to pick a good spot, what looks like a good spot, and do this dating analysis and then make sure that it really is the freshest exposure that they can find. When they do, they only have seven opportunities to use their most sophisticated analytical technique right. for organic matter. And so they want to make sure they have the most promising sample before they actually run one. I think the most you can hope for is that Curiosity gets some really positive results, and that will inform NASA's next effort, which is another rover modeled along the lines of Curiosity that would be launched to Mars in 2020. It will collect samples that maybe somebody could bring back to Earth someday. And it's going to be much more sophisticated as far as identifying interesting rocks for astrobiologists as opposed to ordinary geochemists. All right. Well, Dick Kerr, thank you so much. My pleasure, Linda. Dick Kerr reports the latest results from the Curiosity mission in this week's issue. You can read all six papers online at 
www.sciencemag.org extra slash curiosity. Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our daily news site, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on tracking our moods. Many people use check-in apps on their smartphones to let their friends and followers know that they've frequented a hot night spot or a popular restaurant. But a new study has people checking in with their emotions. So Dave, why might we need to check in with ourselves a few times a day? Well, Sarah, this study is all about depression. One of the problems with depression is is that it's hard to combat unless you get an advanced sense that it's going to happen. So researchers are trying to find a way to anticipate when people are going to not just be depressed, but really have these major depressive episodes that can lead to long-term depression. So why might collecting the emotions from someone multiple times a day help with that? Well, one idea is that there may be a tipping point for depression. In other words, there may be a lot of little things that happen during the day that push us over the edge to depression. But researchers weren't really sure what that was. And hence the idea of checking in with people many times a day. So how many people did they have checking in on themselves? Well, they recruited 600 people. Some were healthy. Some had a diagnosis of depression. And they asked them to track their emotions for about five or six days. And what they did was 10 times a day at random intervals, these people were wearing a watch that would beep. And whenever it would beep, the subjects had to write down what their mood was. Was it cheerful, content, sad? anxious. You get the idea. Six to eight weeks later, the participants filled out a more detailed questionnaire that rated their levels of clinical depression. And so was there a correlation between those measurements on the day and then much later? There was. So what the researchers found was that after the end of the follow-up period, about 13% of the subjects had experienced a shift toward being more depressed, which is about what you'd see in the general population. But what was more interesting was that this shift from a healthy state to depressed state resembled tipping points that had been seen with other phenomena, such as changes to Earth's climate or even social trends, things that go viral, for example. So they were actually able to see the accumulation of these hits, like these states of anxiety, these states of sadness building up over time, and then could actually say, we can make a prediction off that data. Exactly. An example they give is if a healthy person has an unpleasant call with their employer, they'll be unhappy about it and they'll maybe dwell on it for 10 to 20 minutes, then they'll get over it. But people that uh, experience these longer term episodes of depression would dwell on these very negative experiences. And these were things that the researchers picked up on during the study was that these negative moods persisted when the people kept on checking in on themselves several times a day, they they had a much harder time shaking these negative moods. And that would ultimately push them over this tipping point into a much more major depressive episode. Is there a use for this outside of the laboratory? Is this something people might actually turn into an app? Well, exactly. And you might actually see that because, again, the problem with treating depression is really anticipating it. And so if this research leads to a better way to anticipate these depressive episodes, then people might be able to seek therapy or take drugs before the depression actually sets in, which would make it easier to treat. Next up, we have a story on how our diet influences our gut microbes. We talk a lot about our microbial friends on this podcast, what they help us with and how many there are all over our skin, inside of our bodies. In fact, they almost seem at times to be in charge. So, well, this latest study actually turns the tables. Dave, 
why did these researchers wrest control from these tiny tyrants? <laughs> well, right. So this study actually shows that there may be a way for us to control our microbes, our gut microbes, rather than vice versa. As you mentioned, Sarah, gut microbes have been linked to everything from autism to obesity. So they clearly play a very important role in our body, although most of those links have been done in mice, and they haven't been tested as well in humans. One of the reasons is because researchers have long thought that it's very hard for us to change the composition of our gut microbes. There's not just one type of bacteria in our guts. There's tons of different types of bacteria in our guts. And it was thought that it would take weeks or even months to change the composition of these bacteria, and that would be hard to do a study with. But this new study suggests that it's actually fairly easy for us to change these populations of microbes in our guts and exactly what these microbes are doing as well. Basically, they had to get people to change their diets, they right? They did. They did. They did. And they actually took 10 people and they put half of them on a really hardcore carnivore diet. They had to eat basically only pork, cheese, ribs, brisket, salami, <laughs> Pork rinds. Do they have to pay for that? That's a lot of meat. (laughs) And the vegetarians uh, were comprised the other half of the group, and they were put on a very veggie, high fiber diet, beans, rice, things like that. And the scientists were amazed to find that just in the course of just four days, the microbial populations in the guts of these two groups were very different. Well, what kind of difference do they notice? Do they see an uh, influx of a new type of bacteria in their guts? Well, not really new, new types of bacteria, but they saw a rise in certain species of bacteria in the meat eaters versus the vegetarians. And it wasn't just the relative populations of these species. It was what these bacteria were doing. For example, in the meat eaters, they saw that there were bacteria that were known to tolerate high levels of bile, which the body secretes to digest meat. There were much more of these types of bacteria. And not only that, but the gene activity in some of these bacteria reflected how the bacteria were metabolizing food. So, for example, in those eating meat, genes involved in the breaking down of proteins increased their activity. And similarly, in the vegetarians, genes that were important for digesting carbohydrates became much more active. Is there a recommendation that can be made from these findings? Should people eat more or less of any one of these foods? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, because a lot of these bacteria have been linked to disease, you might think, well, all I have to do is start eating a lot of meat or a lot of a lot of veggies, and all of a sudden I can counteract things like autism. And the researchers say we're not anywhere close to that yet. But what this does show is that we do have a lot more control over this microbial population than we thought. The question is, is exerting that control, will that actually lead to good consequences or bad consequences? Some of these bacteria have actually been linked to inflammatory bowel disease. So you certainly wouldn't want to radically change your diet based on this one study because you could actually cause more problems. Finally, we have a story on how earthquakes spread. There are still many mysteries about the behavior of earthquakes, but here's a new one. How are earthquakes like forest fires, Dave? (laughs) Well, the answer isn't simple, but there is an answer, and it turns out earthquakes actually do share some similarity with forest fires. This all gets back to the fact that earthquakes show a surprising statistical regularity. Larger ones occur less frequently than smaller ones. And for more than half a century, scientists have known that earthquakes of magnitude 2 occur roughly one-tenth as often as those of magnitude 1. Those of magnitude 3 occur about one-tenth the rate as those of magnitude 2, and so on. So there is this interesting mathematical relationship between the frequency 
and the size of earthquakes. So it seems like a fairly straightforward correlation. But the one problem with this model of earthquakes is that it leaves out aftershocks. It doesn't really account, for example, for how often aftershocks happen. Okay, so let's bring in the forest fires. How do those fit into maybe tweaking this model of earthquake frequency? Well, there was a researcher in Argentina who thinks that there is some similarity between the way forest fires spread and the way aftershocks, quote-unquote, spread after earthquakes. And what he did was he tried to see if he could apply a similar model that applied to earthquakes to forest fires. And he basically created this model where trees sprout at random on a square grid. It's like a vast checkerboard. And once the forest gets dense enough, lightning sets a random tree on fire, and the fire spreads instantaneously among the trees that occupy the adjacent squares. This conflagration continues until there are no more neighbors to jump to, and the process starts all over again. So applying this to earthquakes, all of a sudden the forest is the plane of a fault cutting through Earth's crust. And sprouting trees correspond to the buildup of stress along the fault. Burning areas correspond to the part of the fault that moves during a quake. Now, when he applied this model, it didn't match exactly what was seen with earthquakes. So he tweaked things a little bit. He actually introduced two different types of trees. One, which he called A trees that burn instantly, and B trees that burn more slowly and only light their neighbors up after a small delay. And the fire pauses when it has to hit one of these bee trees as a consequence. The result is that the forest fire breaks into a cluster of smaller fires, slightly separated in time, that reduces the frequency of really big fires. When he did this, the model of the spread of forest fires matched very closely the distribution of earthquake sizes. So this is something they were able to compare to real-world data? Well, the researchers showed that if you looked at California quake data over the past 20 years, he did see a similar correlation to what he was seeing in his model, in his forest fire model. But earthquake researchers, though they think this is interesting, say there's been a lot of attempts to correlate the statistics in earthquakes to other things. This is just the latest, and it's unclear what impact this will have on both understanding the spread of earthquakes and even possibly predicting them. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, for Science Now, we've got a story about ways to prevent birds from crashing into airplanes called Bird Strike. Also a story about why the animal family tree trunk may be made of jelly. (laughs) For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got an item about how a new U.S. budget deal could spare some very tough cuts for scientific research funding. Also a follow-up to our story from last week about efforts to grant chimpanzees legal personhood in U.S. courts. Those efforts have failed, and we talk a little bit about what happens next. Finally, for Science Live, our weekly chat on the hottest topics in science, this week's Science Live is about efforts to understand the origins of human disease by digging up the bones in a thousand-year graveyard. And we'll be taking a brief hiatus for Science Live for the rest of December, returning in early January. Be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi.
And that concludes the December 13th, 2013 edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. And I'm Christy Hamilton. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.